I wanted to welcome you to EOC as well. Um, it is great to have you here. Uh, to kind of put me in the puzzle, um, I'm not a student. Uh, what I am is a, a hired worker, so to speak, who comes along and gets alongside uh, Christian student groups, in this case ACU at Strathfield and at North Sydney. Um, and I help the students run the group, particularly around things to do with teaching and training in the Bible. Uh, one of the things that I hope um, you'll realise by the end of the night is that EOC, at EOC the Bible is at the heart of everything that we do. Right? So virtually we will do nothing um, where we don't have the Bible out in front of us. And that's because we believe that the Bible is the means by which God has spoken to humanity. Uh, it's the means by which he's revealed himself to us uh, and speaks to us and tells us how we should live. So we take it seriously. Uh, and so this is uh, no different tonight. And so, like I said, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 1, 15 to 17. Um, but before we get there, I want to throw back the mission statement um, onto the screen. And I want to just draw your attention to the fact um, that we are all on about uh, proclaiming Jesus. And as you look at those verses in front of you that we just read out, particularly in verse 15, we see that same eagerness in Paul. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So really, EOC is trying to mimic Paul, who was one of the apostles of God, um, in his eagerness and in his focus, his mission, which was to preach the gospel. Uh, and to put it bluntly, his mission to preach the gospel was actually a little crazy. Uh, because at the time that Paul lived, there was a great persecution against Christianity. And things that people um, were saying and doing in proclaiming Jesus, they were being killed for it. And that's something that Paul um, is saying that he was eager to do. Uh, and so he's just a little wacko when you think about it, right? Um, today, it's not so much different. In Australia, we may not get killed, uh, but Christianity is not regarded in the same way it was even 10 years ago. Um, what was good for society and considered wholesome and nice, the good morals and that sort of stuff, has now actually become harmful for society. It undermines us and divides us. Um, and so you may look at our mission statement then with a different sort of eye and go, hang on a minute, that's crazy. Uh, and what I want to suggest to you is that it is. Uh, the question I want to answer tonight in this short talk is why EOC is as eager to preach the gospel as Paul was. And the answer is that we share Paul's reasoning in verses 16 and 17. And so these two little verses that we're going to look at um, in this great big book called the Bible are persuasive enough to change the course of an entire man's life. That's Paul's. Um, and in these two little verses, what we find are three statements that build on each other. And they're connected by a little word there, for. Maybe your translations have because. And the idea is that verse, verse 15, Paul is eager to preach the gospel because he is not ashamed of it. Because it's God's power to save. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so they all hang off each other. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through those three statements um, in that order. And we're going to look at shame... We're going to look at power, and we're going to look at righteousness. So the first thing I want to look at is the shame of the gospel. Uh, Paul says in verse 16 that he is eager to preach the gospel because he is not ashamed of the gospel. Now, shame is an incredibly important motivator in our society, isn't it? Um, it can move you to do things that you do not want to do. Um, I listen to a podcast called Reply All. It's fairly popular. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, it's basically a bunch of nerds talking. And in one of the things they were talking about, they were talking about uh, regrets, particularly around email. And one of the hosts 
once accidentally sent a message to his ex-girlfriend that was meant for his new girlfriend and he'd only just broken up with the previous girl, right? So what does he do? Well, he goes to the ex's house, knocks on the door under some pretense, and while he's at her house, sneaks into her study, hops on her laptop and deletes the email and then leaves. <laughs> that is shame, right? That's some Mission Impossible stuff. He did something that I am pretty sure is illegal because he didn't want to face shame. Now, it works the other way as well. Shame not only moves you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do, it stops you from doing things that you want to do. So, Crazy Rich Asians, anyone? You seen that movie? Okay, yeah, cool. The whole tension of that movie is that the Crazy Rich Asian is having second thoughts about marrying his girlfriend because her shady past is gonna bring shame to his family. He wants to marry her, but almost doesn't because of the possibility of shame. Now, we're not strangers to shame, are we? And we see it, the Facebook and the social shaming, all those sorts of things, and we would do anything to avoid it. Uh, we don't like being exposed, we don't like being mocked, we don't like being belittled. And so that's why it's so surprising that Paul wanted to preach the gospel in the first place. In the book of 1 Corinthians, which is not the book that we'll be studying this semester at EOC, Paul actually calls the gospel by another phrase. He calls it the word of the cross. And the reason he calls the gospel that is because the gospel is all about Jesus and him crucified. It is a message that God has chosen a king and sent him to save the world, but he did that by being murdered on a cross. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, uh, Jews dem demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. And so what Paul was saying there is that the message of the cross, Jews, Gentiles, it was universally considered to be shameful in the ancient world. The Jews thought that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God, that's in the Old Testament, and so to them it was ridiculous to think that the promised Messiah could have been put to death on a cross. Why would God exalt somebody who he had intentionally shamed? The Gentiles, they thought similarly, crucifixion in the Roman Empire was considered the most shameful death that you could endure. So much so that it was actually forbidden for Roman citizens, if they were worthy of the death penalty, to be put to death by the cross. It was beneath them, even if they deserved death. And so for the Greeks and the Gentiles, any thought that a king could be crucified was ludicrous. Uh, to think otherwise was shameful. And so today, let's take the shift here. I don't think much has changed. The reasons might have, but the end result stays the same. They see it to be shameful. And I think the recent plebiscite on same-sex marriage is all the evidence that we need. Now, I'm not trying to make a point about the result of that, but I do want to draw attention to something that happened in the aftermath. After the vote went through and it was successful for the Yes campaign, another campaign started. It was a Twitter campaign, and it went viral against the leader of the Australian Christian lobby, a guy called Lyle Sheldon. Now, I don't know whether you saw this on Facebook, but this is basically what it was. I won't read it out, but that little phrase at the top there, eat, poo, Lyle, um, hit Twitter and went wild. Um, and Lyle Sheldon, as the head of the ACL, was probably the, the most um, publicly known no proponent and known as a Christian. And what's interesting is the article's author, a guy there called Rob Stott, um, his, his story, his article was basically just taking the worst of those tweets and putting them on and he said that it was doing more traffic than the actual story about marriage equality passing. 
So on the eve of that going down, this was actually making the news. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a point about gay marriage here, but what I'm trying to demonstrate for us is that to speak up for Christianity and its values today, as in Paul's time, is to invite a shame that is so heavy that in the case of Lyle, he resigned from the ACL and he quit public life. It was just too much. And yet Paul here in our passage is able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he say that? What could possibly motivate him to invite a response upon himself and yet enable to stand up under it and not feel the shame? Well, the answer is in our next statement, which is the power of the gospel. The reason Paul can be inundated with vitriol and can take the tweets and not feel shame for preaching the gospel is because he remembers what the gospel is. If you look there in verse 16, what does it say? It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he's willing to cop flack all day and listen to people say his gospel was irrational, unreasonable, unloving, oppressive, shameful. And he could do that because he knew his gospel was none of those things. The atheists might decry his lack of intelligence. The social progressives might slam his traditional values. The morally outraged might call Jesus' death cosmic child abuse by a father God. But Paul would not be cowed into shameful silence because he knew what he had was God's power to save because that's what the gospel is. It's a message of salvation. It declares to us that, one, we have a need for saving, but two, it provides a way for us to be saved. And so that message, that message is far more precious and worth far more than any of the weight of shame or derision people can place on us. In this particular passage, what Paul is doing is essentially a cost-benefit analysis. And because the benefits so far exceed the, the, um, the costs, he's actually unashamed to flag the, uh, fly the flag at, OWIC, at EOC um, and play it for Jesus. Uh, for example, um, I've made this observation uh, at OWIC last week at Strathfield. Um, the stall next to the EOC stall was the Literature Society. I don't know how you feel about books. Some people like them, some people don't. I love them. Uh, and the Literature Society was basically one girl, a girl called Nat, and she had on her table at least 20 or 30 books, all of them wrapped in brown paper, uh, to give away as surprise gifts to anyone who was interested in the society. Now, I asked her where she got all those books from, um, and she said that she'd bought them all from Vinnie's. And so I'm looking at a table, 20, 30 books, it's probably about $150 to $200 worth of books on that table, and I, just, I, I didn't ask her this directly, but it really posed the question for me. What drives someone, a uni student no less, to invest that much of your personal bank account on strangers? I mean, in her case, it was a love of literature. Now, now don't get me wrong, I love books, but they aren't going to save you. They age and they're yellow and they're eventually forgotten. Their impact is at best temporary. All, of course, except for one book. And that's because it contains the gospel. And that gospel can save people. In fact, we see that there in there in verse 16. It says, everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. No one is excluded from this hope. Now, the message of salvation, it came through the Jews and for the Jews, but it was made available to the rest of the world because of God's great generosity. 
And what that means is that anybody who steps onto campus here at Strathfield has the opportunity to claim the salvation of God if it's presented to them. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they believe, doesn't matter what they've done. They can respond to it and be saved. So it makes a lot of sense of Paul's eagerness, doesn't it? From the perspective of that girl, now $150 is a small price to pay. From the perspective of Paul, shame is a small price to pay. Now, when Beth and I got engaged, uh, do you know what the first thing we did was? We sat down and we called absolutely everybody we knew. Uh, We had news and we wanted people to know it because we knew it was good news. And so let me ask you, what do you think the gospel is? Is it the shameful message that the media or your Facebook feed or your classmates tell you that it is? Or is it the power of God to save everybody who comes in contact with it? Because if it is that last one, then you actually have no cause to be ashamed. Because you know that when you preach it, God's power is at work to bring people out from under his condemnation and judgment and into his care and his blessing. So why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Well, he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because it saves people. And that brings us to our third and final point, the righteousness of the gospel. Now, it should be abundantly clear by now that Paul has a supreme confidence in the gospel. But one question I think has been left unanswered as we look at these first few verses, and that is, what is it about the gospel message that makes it powerful to save? Now, there are a number of ways I think a message can save you. It might warn us of a danger to be avoided. So, you know, like a sign saying, warning landmines, warning edge of cliff. Uh, Alternatively, it might instruct us as to how to pass through a danger or disarm a threat. So like a bomb defusal manual. Um, And while both those things can be said to be true of the gospel, they warn and it, it helps us navigate danger. That's not actually what Paul says here in verse 17. He actually says that the gospel saves because it reveals something. So have a look there at verse 17. Let me read it out for you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in my opinion, that's a bit random. Because like, if we were going to have, be saved by the revelation of something, I would have thought it would have been like the revelation of the mercy of God or the forgiveness of God or even the, the price or the entry into heaven of God. But what I'm not expecting to hear is the righteousness of God. Because I thought that that was the source of the problem, not the answer to the problem. I thought the problem was that God is actually righteous and we aren't and so therefore we're in serious trouble. We actually read in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we learn that he will judge each of us, in verse 6, according to what we have done. But there's bad news, because once we get to Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, we see that no one is righteous, not even one. All of us stand before God, and all of us are found wanting. And so my question is, how is the revelation of God's righteousness able to save us? It makes no sense, right? And this question is not a new question. In fact, this is the very verse that plagued the conscience of Martin Luther, the man who would spark the Reformation. 
He tried absolutely everything to soothe his guilty conscience. He prayed, he fasted, he became a monk. He's actually on record at one point of saying, and I'll quote this for you, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Right? So here is a man who can do the good works. And here's what he says about the verse in question here in verse 17. He says, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood to the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. But he continues, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. This verse that we're looking at sparked one of the greatest social and religious changes in the history of mankind. Later on, it would convert a guy called John Wesley, um, and then again and again and again, it would have an influence on people and bring them to faith as they realized that the righteousness of God was not the righteousness by which he judged the world, but his own righteousness which he gives us through his son Jesus. And what that means then is that when he comes to judge and he looks upon us, he doesn't see us as an unrighteous person, guilty and deserving of his punishment. What he sees is he sees us clothed in his own righteousness and consequently he declares us righteous. And that declaration, what the, the quote there calls justification, he justifies us, that's our gateway into heaven, to use Luther's language. It saves us. And the only thing that we need to do is place our faith, our trust in him, that when he says his righteousness will stand in, our own, in place of our own righteousness, he speaks the truth. And that's why Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what does he say? He says, believes. That's why Paul quotes the Old Testament there at the end of verse 17, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a passage from Habakkuk chapter 2. And that passage he quotes, it doesn't say the righteous shall live by their own righteousness or because they earned their, their good life. Um, that's impossible. You've already stained your record. There's no redemption in that direction. No, it says by faith there. And so it's only by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God that we can be declared righteous and so be saved. And that is why the gospel is the power of God to save. Because it reveals to us the only righteousness that enables us to pass through the judgment of God unscathed. And that is why Paul is unashamed. That is why he is eager to preach the gospel. And that's why we at EOC are as well. Uh, and so I just want to finish briefly with an invitation. Will you join us? If you're not a Christian, that's fine. Will you stick around and will you let us share with you in much more depth, with a lot more space to discuss and ask questions, raise doubts and concerns, what it is that we believe and what it is that can save you? If you're already a Christian and you've been saved by the righteousness of God, then will you join us and be eager to preach the gospel on campus with us? It is a powerful message that we have received and it saves people. 
Who cares about literature? Who cares about engagement announcements? They'll all pass away. But what you have is the gospel. Will you share it? Will you share it with us at EOC? We'd really love that. So how about I pray? Our Father in heaven, thank you for Paul's example, uh, that he understood the gospel properly, both its substance, in that it was your righteousness for us, um, and in its power, that it was able to save as a result. Thank you that he modelled to us what it was to not be ashamed of a message that is hated in our world. And I pray for us at EOC that we will stay true, stay unashamed, and that through us you will be pleased to grant many people on campus to come to repentance and faith and be saved from their sins. It's in your son's name who does save us, we pray this. Amen. Amen.